this episode, please consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello, and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. And I'm your new co-host, Amanda Justice, representing all the potential therapy clients out there. And today, we welcome to the show, David Zuniga, licensed psychologist who will be speaking about his practice in an area of specialty, spiritually integrative counseling. Welcome to the show, David. Hi, thank you for having me, Amanda. No, I'm glad to be here. It's good to have you. I know uh, we had you, you were scheduled before and we had to move things around. And I'm just so glad that we were able to, to make it happen because I think this is a topic that uh, a lot of therapists in general are uncomfortable with. Um, and a lot of clients out there would benefit from. So um, to get us started, what are your credentials and experience? Sure. Well, I, uh, I actually didn't start out as a clinical psychologist. I originally, to kind of share a little bit about my background, I, in my early 20s, I got a master's degree in English literature. And I share that we're here talking about psychology, but I believe that there are many paths up the healing mountain. And I believe that all kinds of forms of art, literature, poetry, film, music, uh, song, musicals, uh, all kinds of art have legitimate clinical psychological values. So, <clears throat> and even in a psychological setting, we all have a story in our lives. And what is that story? So uh, I do th sometimes clinically think in terms of kind of themes and stories and narratives that we tell ourselves. So I got a master's degree in English. And then I, um, and so I guess this is kind of also, I think you were going to ask a question about like how I got into therapy. Is it okay? Yeah, 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 yeah. Cool, cool. Um, and uh, so then um, I had a couple jobs, honestly, I worked as insurance company for a little bit. Uh, did not enjoy that. I, um, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, worked at a residential treatment facility for juvenile offenders and uh, what my wife affectionately called kitty prison. And it was a actually an alternative uh, to the kind of, this was back in the early nineties, uh, alternative to kind of, 
traditional correctional centers. And um, yeah, so I worked there uh, with convicted felons. And I, I do believe that um, working with people who had been convicted felons, and I'm not saying what they did was okay. They did kind of sometimes horrible traumatic things. And also almost invariably the people in that facility came from backgrounds of poverty, um, different forms of systemic suffering. And it was uh, kind of like they say of the Peace Corps, it's the toughest job you'll ever love. And um, I did believe that kind of, you know, on a note of, we'll get into spiritually integrative counseling, that no matter what these people had done, um, they had a core of goodness within them. And actually, I think they just wanted someone to help tap into it. And they had come from environments where no one was tapping into it and kind of reinforcing trauma. And so right. uh, that inspired me to, I went to Harvard Divinity School, studied comparative religion with a particular eye towards Buddhist philosophy and mindfulness. Um, when I, after I did that, I graduated with a Master of Divinity and I started working as an interfaith chaplain. Uh, first up in Massachusetts, and then my wife is from Texas, so kind of the typical Texas thing. I got out down here, I guess, as fast as I could uh, in my early 30s, and uh, uh, I worked as, well, I was working as a chaplain um, in Massachusetts, hospice and oncology, basically, Uh, and then I came down to Austin, Texas, and did the same thing, and I was working as a Zen interfaith chaplain. Um, For those who aren't familiar, I'll kind of share right off the bat, I, um, if you've never heard of Zen or Zen Buddhism, um, Zen is kind of, for those unfamiliar with Zen, I define it as one of two ways. Zen is a system of philosophy and psychology with a lot of meditation, uh, or you could define Zen as Unitarianism with a lot of meditation. I think either of those are fair definitions, but I was a, a lay Zen practitioner for several years after I graduated from Harvard, working as a kind of lay chaplain, Zen interface chaplain, uh, palliative care, hospice care, um, oncology, end-stage oncology with both pediatric and adult patients, children and adults. Uh, I did that for several years. During that time, and I was actually, I think, the third Buddhist in the country to do that kind of work. Um, there. Buddhism has a huge emphasis on the idea of suffering, a lot of connections with psychology, and there just aren't as many Buddhists in the U.S. So I was the third uh, to do that kind of work professionally, uh, certified professional. Um, And then in 2005, during that time, I was also going back and forth between East Asia and the United States. Uh, In 2005, I became the first Westerner ordained in the Tego lineage of Zen. What that means is just like there's different denominations of Christianity or different forms of Judaism, Islam, et cetera, um, there's different schools of Buddhism. Um, There's Chinese Zen, Japanese Zen, Korean Zen. There's two main lineages of Korean Zen, and I was the first Westerner ordained in my lineage of Zen. So, um, yeah, it was one thing I'm grateful for my Zen training in Asia. And honestly, one of the things I'm most grateful for is that it was... Uh, a wonderful cultural diversity immersion, I must say. Uh, and I, I lo- yeah, yeah. And I am a lover of cultural diversity and I am so grateful uh, for that kind of cultural immersion. So I was ordained as a Zen Buddhist priest in South Korea. Um, for those of you who are kind of very knowledgeable about Zen, uh, in traditional Asian Buddhism, there's two levels of ordination, kind of the Shramana and Bhikkhu 
Um, one is kind of like a novice ordination. And then when it's full ordination, I did both uh, in 2005. And then again, in the Bhikkhu ordination in 2008. Uh, and I kept working as an interfaith chaplain. Uh, originally, I worked for Seton, now Ascension Healthcare. I, I assume a fair amount of the Austin's audience is Central Texas. Um, and then I um, went back while I was still working as a chaplain, I went back to school, kind of doing double duty, full-time PhD student, full-time hospice worker, and I did a PhD in clinical psychology. Um, and I was working in private, I got my PhD in psychology, I was working for several years uh, in private practice, I then actually got recruited by social media, which I know uh, therapists listen to this um, podcast as well. And social media is a complicated thing as a mental health practitioner. Indeed, indeed it is. Uh, I'll, I'll even say this. Um, there's a classic saying in Buddhism that samsara and nirvana are one. Uh, and what one of the things that means is suffering and joy exist together. And I think that's the perfect way to describe social media. <laughs> social, media <laughs> <laughs> yeah. social media can be healing and it can be traumatic. They're both true. But anyways, uh, social media has been skillful for me. I actually, and so I'm kind of giving a shout to all the Noah, all the other fellow therapists out there. Um, Amanda, are you a therapist too? Forgive me. I know you're a patient advocate. Uh, no, I'm, I'm not a therapist. I am a therapy client. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. As uh, and I know that's a question later. I've done therapy. Therapy is a health, healthy thing. I personally think all therapists too should be therapy clients, at least Agreed. at some point in their life. Right. Exactly. Um, because one of the most important things about being a therapist is knowing yourself and being kind. Right. So anyways, uh, I was working in private practice here in Austin, Texas, loving it. I actually got recruited for a tenure track faculty job at MD Anderson and the original faculty recruiter found me via Twitter. So, um, How interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, social media can be a real tool for practical, positive, social change, forms of healing, all kinds of stuff. And it's complicated. But anyways, so I had a tenure track job. I was, I was working in the integrative medicine department at MD Anderson, which might be interesting for us to talk about. I did a lot of work with kind of meditation with patients while they were doing surgery, that kind of thing. I was, I was kind of the mindfulness guy at MD Anderson. Uh, but I was also faculty. Uh, and I think they wanted to move me into research, which I love research. I mean, I have a PhD in clinical psychology. I'm actually trained as a researcher, but honestly, this is what I love doing. I love just sitting with people and talking about stuff that matters. So I stayed for a year just to kind of round out my resume. And then we got back to Austin, Texas, and I resumed my practice. And um, so I have a master of divinity in, in comparative religion. I have a master's of English. I was also, I didn't, I don't know if I shared this with y'all, but I was recently promoted in my Zen lineage. Um, I was the first Westerner ordained in my lineage, but now there's lots of us, and which I'm grateful for. And I recently uh, was appointed as the vice bishop of kind of North America, what they call the North America Europe Parish, if you will. So I'm now a vice That's awesome. Bishop. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> I'm honored to be a psychologist. I love what I do. I'm a, a vice bishop now in my Zen lineage. And um, I definitely have a strong interest in uh, spiritually integrative counseling. Absolutely. So um, I have so many questions I want to ask. Sure, yeah, the yeah. First, it's good to be with you, friends. <laughs> the, the first one that I want to bring up, you had mentioned Seton. Um, now, Seton, I, I know at one point they had this program. I don't know what's happened with COVID 
It's the, I think it's called No One Dies Alone, something like that. Ah, that was actually after my time. I was, I guess, to share two interesting things that, and I guess Seton is now Ascension Healthcare. Ascension, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, when I was at Seton, um, so this was a while ago, this was with the old Brackenridge and the old Children's Hospital. Gotcha, um, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. By the time the new Children's Hospital and the new Brackenridge, I guess the new Brackenridge is across the street from the old one. Uh, I had gone on to Hospice Austin and then did started working as a psychologist. But um, I ran, I think, maybe the first palliative care program at Seton, um, or at least to my knowledge. Uh, I ran a palliative care program for oncology patients at Seton. And then another kind of interesting thing is Seton, so y'all have heard of John Kabat-Zinn, mindfulness-based stress reduction. Uh, Ascension Healthcare, which Seton is a part of, uh, they are the largest, I believe, the largest nonprofit healthcare provider in the country, interestingly. And they had developed their own form of mindfulness-based stress reduction uh, and used it. Yeah, yeah, it was very cool. Um, Mindfulness is huge in healthcare and psychology, obviously. Um, And I was part, I think they had five, mindfulness trainers uh, who were certified in mindfulness. And I was one of those. And uh, we used that at Ascension Healthcare slash Seton. And uh, that was pretty exciting, teaching mindfulness to the first, the physicians and the, the administrators, the nurses, social workers, kind of moving it out. Mindfulness is definitely a powerful tool in mm-hmm. healthcare and uh, end of life work and, and mental health. Yeah. So, but no, the For no sure. one dies alone. I used to work as a chaplain there and I would, we would be on call and it was kind mm-hmm. of standard policy to always have a chaplain when someone dies, um, or at least offer that. They may not want a chaplain, and that's okay too, you know, uh, but to be available in case they want that. And I think my understanding of the No One Dies Alone program is it's akin to that. And I think maybe. Yeah, it's more. so my understanding of the program, like I said, I don't know what the status is of it now with COVID sure. is, is right. that there were volunteers on call for when somebody was in the process of dying who didn't have any sort of family or friends to be around them. And these volunteers would go be with that person as they passed, Um, which I think is extremely powerful and like, you know, um, just so needed. Um, Yeah, it is. needed. Oh, go on. It it is. Well, I was just going to ask, you know, you're giving us all this information about you. What, What is the name of your practice? Um, Oh, uh, my practice. It's just Dr. David Zuniga, PLLC. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So okay. great question. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So at your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? And we can yeah. have lots of conversations around that too. If you want. <laughs> sure. sure. Uh, however much is skillful for your audience. Um, I am not currently on any insurance panels. I used to be uh, when I worked as a psychologist in hospitals, like you know MD Anderson. Right, I was right. on, I think, every panel. I'm not on panel in my private practice, and you know, the short answer is to what the way I run my practice is I do kind of a Robin Hood style practice. Clients who can afford my full fee support clients who can't. Um, so I absolutely slide for my clients. Um, mental health care can be life saving. And my personal view, I think, Noah, you and I may have been chit chatting before the show, the three of us were chatting. Um, I used to work for an insurance company when I was in grad school. I'll, I'll say this. I'm, uh, I'm not trying to be too political. I know we're in political times, but I will just say um, mental health care literally saves lives. Um, if you have clinical depression, you have a shorter life expectancy. That's, that's the sad and complicated reality of mental health. The, the sad reality of mental health is that 
from age six to age 80, the third leading cause of sudden death is suicide. From age six to age 80, the third leading cause of death is suicide. And so mental health absolutely saves lives. Mental health also focuses on wellness, positive psychology, self-actualization, all of those kind of wonderful things. So I believe that psychology saves lives and it's life-giving. And it's actually more affordable to have some kind of system in place where people have universal access. When you actually have a system in place that provides universal access, it drives the cost down and it's good for consumers across the board. We don't have that yet. And we have this kind of, uh, for various political reasons, we have this kind of patchwork system of employer-based healthcare. Uh, which is not working really in our society. And, you know, in our society, we have a kind of gap between the haves and the have nots that unfortunately is widening and has widened during the pandemic. And so the problem is you have, anybody can benefit from healthcare or mental healthcare, especially during the pandemic, but the pandemic has almost kind of exacerbated you have some people who can afford health care, mental health care, and they get premium quality care. And then other people sometimes can't access quality care. And that's unfortunate. The reason I don't take insurance to be very candid, and, and I would take insurance when I worked in the hospitals because, um, I mean, a standard therapy session, in my experience, a standard therapy session for a fully licensed clinician for people who pay out of top pocket is going to be anywhere on average it may depend, you know, versus how much experience or training you have, but $100 to $200 a session, um, just as a ballpark. Um, insurance companies would reimburse, depending on level of training, from $60 to $120 a session to kind of get into it. Um, you can have a master's or PhD level clinician in a hospital, and they'll automatically triple or quadruple that cost. They just yeah. mark up the cost in hospitals. Right. So, you know, and not just, and, and, and it's, it's no one thing that causes healthcare prices to go up. It's a multiplicity of factors in our society. But the bottom line is with insurance, um, I don't take insurance because I feel it gives my clients more control over their confidentiality, their privacy and control of their records. Most Absolutely. Consumers, right. Most consumers don't know this. But the truth is, um, most forms of insurance will only pay for very limited forms of counseling. Basically, CBT, uh, maybe what we call a motivational interviewing or DBT, and that's pretty much it. You know, that's pretty much what they'll pay for. Maybe EMDR, stuff like that. And those forms of counseling are fine. I do some of those forms of counseling. But there's other forms of counseling that are equally good, sometimes better, depending on what's going on with the client. And so insurance limits the type of counseling you can do. Insurance also, and a lot of people don't know this, in general, to get counseling, you have to be diagnosed with a mental illness. And if you get diagnosed with a mental illness, that becomes a permanent part of your insurance record, your medical record. And sometimes that can cause you complications. I'll just leave it at that because there's other stuff to talk about. So, and then- yeah. And what also happens, and Noah, you've worked with insurance too. You've worked in the field of insurance. So I bet you know this probably even better than me, but, uh, and you probably know this too, Amanda, as an advocate for patients. So if me or Noah, for example, sees a client on Blue Cross, Blue Shield, Aetna, any insurance company, you have to assign a diagnosis. 
post-traumatic stress disorder, addiction disorders, depression, schizophrenia, whatever it is. A lot of those conditions may or may not be covered, like access to conditions, as one example. A lot of common conditions aren't covered. And then also getting a diagnosis like that, while it shouldn't be stigmatizing and while it shouldn't hinder you in any way, shape or form, it all too often does. And so then what happens, and this is some kind of insider baseball talk, but you know, so clinicians then, because they don't want to harm their clients by giving them a diagnosis, they play games with a diagnosis and you give them a diagnosis like adjustment disorder. But then technically, maybe you run into playing being insurance fraud because you're not being truthful with an insurance company about what the client actually has. So it puts the patient in a weird spot. It puts the therapist in the wrong spot. Um, insurance companies also drive down the cost and inflate costs for providers like me and Noah. So do we need universal access to quality care? Yes. I don't feel that insurance is good for patients or clinicians in general. Now, I do take HSA cards. I can also give clients reinsurance and they usually, I have a PhD, so it's no problem. They get reimbursed most of the time, but I don't take insurance for those reasons. When I worked in the hospitals, I would. Yeah. No, uh, like, I mean, people just don't understand how much we jack up healthcare costs in this country versus every other country in the planet. Quick example. Um, and I haven't been in the hospitals uh, for like five or six years now, but you know, there are single doses of chemotherapy that can cost over a hundred thousand dollars. You know, you can be rich and cancer can bankrupt you. Right. And, right. you know, so the costs just get drived up. And so what insurance companies do is it drives down costs for, you know, uh, reimbursement for people like me and Noah. So that's probably more than people want to know, but, but actually, it's a lot. yeah, and it, but you know, consumers need to be informed about this stuff because consumers are ultimately the ones who are suffering. Right. Right. So if I can clarify, cause I didn't know this before. So if I see a private therapist without insurance and I were to get diagnosed with something, you know, more stigmatized, say like PTSD or bipolar yeah. that doesn't go on my permanent medical record. It does. It does. Well, well, sort if, of. if you're using insurance, it does. if you're using well, insurance. if I'm not using insurance though, then if, there's no way there's no centralized location okay. for that data. So that doesn't go into the, you know, like if I were to get a background check to get a gun or something like that, that doesn't right, show right, up right. on there. I had right. no idea. That's very yeah, it's 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 huge. Or a law enforcement, uh, military jobs, right? You know, or just security clearance, security clearance. Yeah, I had all no idea. Yeah, and yeah. unfortunately, most people don't. Um, but yeah, I mean, I could talk about insurance all day, and Noah could too. Me but. too. Me too, David. Um, so and I want to talk about what y'all want to talk about. To yeah. Clear. Yeah. So uh, another thing I want to add about insurance that is entirely frustrating is like you were talking about mental health like saves lives. However, mental health is not treated and billed in ways that medical health is. Yep. And and you know another aspect I want to add to that is this ridiculous thing that dental care is not covered under medical insurance. It's like, I need to have teeth to eat, to live, <laughs> right. you know, like <laughs> it's, right, right. it's, it's ridiculous. Um, right. anyway, okay. Let's not give, <laughs> let's not give insurance anymore. Time. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so David at your practice, do you have weekend or evening appointments available? Uh, only on special occasions. And, and okay. part of that is part of the way I structure my practice is I'm fortunate to have a successful practice. And so then I also give psychology away for free. Uh, I write a column, a newspaper column called Zen for Daily Living for the Statesman. 
I speak at a lot of academic conferences. I do a lot of like trainings for physicians, nurses, healthcare groups, speaking at churches, mosques, synagogues on different forms of mindfulness. I mean, I probably do, I'd say 20 to 50 free public health, you know, and some stuff like this podcast interviews, you know, per year, my calendar's on my website, all public information. But so during the day, uh, yeah, I do. Well, I I mean, I, (laughs) you know, as a Zen Buddhist in Zen, we say we, uh, so I'm a clinical psychologist and I'm a Zen Buddhist. And both of those things definitely infuse my way of, you know, one of your questions is about presence, uh, you know, and just my being in the world. But yeah, and Zen, we say you take a bodhisattva vow, you want to do all you can to ease the healing of the world. And so, um, yeah, a quick example. I, um, so I'm Zen Buddhist, but uh, for every Sunday in December, um, St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church um, in, in North Austin, uh, now this is with my Zen hat on, but uh, I was doing, you know, so in a Christian service, um, you usually have a couple readings and I would read a Buddhist passage for all four Sundays in a row at St. Andrew's Church. So I'm just always, you know, cultural dialogues, cultural diversity, inclusivity, uh, LGBTQ stuff, just working in the community uh, to promote diversity, inclusivity. Yeah. Okay. And so, I do that yeah. on my evenings and weekends. Yeah. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> So in these times of the pandemic, are you currently seeing clients via telehealth in person or a combination of both? Excellent question. Uh, The vast majority telehealth and the research suggests that telehealth is just as telehealth is just as good often for biological health care and mental health care. And um, the thing is a big to be sure, a big part of my practice, Noah, is um, I work with cancer patients, chronic illness patients. cancer dialysis, um, caregivers, people who are grieving, but um, patients in hospice or palliative care, the kind of patients I see often have compromised immune systems anyways. And so then during the pandemic, you know, being on uh, telehealth just helps keep my patients safer. When the patient, when the, I mean, right now we have the Omicron variant as we're doing this interview, but uh, numbers will go back down. And um, when the numbers are lower than I might meet at a park, as long as it's not quite as confidential, as, you know, as telehealth, but as long as the client's okay with that, we might meet at a park or go for a walk somewhere in town, like on Town Lake or something like that. So. Okay, cool, cool. Um, so you described to us earlier kind of like your journey starting with uh, studying English. And I'm wondering, you know, you talked about stories and narratives and being really interested in that. And I'm wondering, is that what ultimately drew you to being a therapist or was there some sort of other pull there? Yeah, um, I was raised uh, Roman Catholic and I went to Christian grade school, middle school, high school. Um, and I share that with you because all my life I've been interested in religion and spirituality. Obviously now I'm Zen Buddhist. So, you know, there was a evolution of my spiritual views we might see, but, but I'm even, well, yeah, from Catholic to Zen, there's quite a a bit of ground in between. (laughs) But, but I would, and I agree with you, my friend, but I would add to that. and, and, And I would add that, you know, Christianity, Zen psychology, we're all interested in the transformation of suffering. Sure. And, and what does it mean to live? What does it mean to be well? Uh, as the historical Buddha said, we all have difficulty in our lives and we want to be free of that difficulty. So what I'm kind of trying to share is that uh, as a kid, I was always interested in religion. Um, there was a poem I read when I was a little kid. Uh, when I was a kid, uh, 
I had these things called McGuffey readers, which I think are from the forties. Um, and even as a kid, I loved old books because I'm a perpetual nerd. And uh, there are these things called McGuffey readers, which are like these old textbooks. And there was a poem in there. I read this when I was a little kid, like eight or nine years old. But uh, one of the lines was, into every life, some rain must fall. And so even as, and, and another thing that happened to me when I was a child is my great grandmother died. Uh, she was called Grandma B, but she was actually my great grandmother. And uh, I just loved her a lot. And when she died, I was 10 years old and it rocked me. And um, I remember I saw my mom crying and my mom has always been my best friend. And my mom was kind of my alpha and my omega. Like my mom was tough and kind and just epic. And, um, and when I saw my mom cry, it was like, whoa, that's like, Mike Tyson and the Dalai Lama as one crying, like it just blew me away, you know? And, uh, and, and I, I thought, wow, what is the nature of death? What is, what is the nature of death and human existence that these things could rock someone like my mom, who's so strong and, and truthfully, uh, and I say this as somebody who's worked in end of life care for over 20 years, death makes beginners of us all. Death is a supreme teacher and it makes beginners of us all. But I guess from kind of those events from my childhood, I've always been interested in these kind of questions. And, you know, master's in English, master's in Buddhist philosophy, PhD in psychology, Buddhist monk. Um, you know, I'm just a regular human being. We're all human beings. We're all imperfect. I'm no exception. And I just want my life to be a journey of healing. I want to do yeah. what I can. And, and that's even why I'm here today with you, my friends. Thank yeah, you. That makes, that makes sense. Um, so tell us a little more about yourself. It sounds like you're a busy guy. You're doing all these talks and podcasts, et cetera, et cetera. What do you do in your free time? What are your hobbies, <laughs> interests, TV shows you're watching, music you listen to, pets, kids, et cetera, et cetera? Sure, sure. Well, I appreciate you asking. Um, I'm married. I, and that is kind of an interesting thing with Zen. You know, uh, I was kind of curious about that. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Because uh, a lot of people... Um, most Zen is like... if So in Christianity, you... The, you two of the main lineages of Christianity, if you will, are Protestant Christianity and Roman Catholicism. You also have Orthodox Christianity, but a, a lot of Americans are familiar with Catholicism and Protestant Christianity. It's kind of an easy symbol to use. Uh, in Protestant Christianity, if you're ordained, you can be married. In Catholicism, if you're fully ordained, you are celibate. Um, most Buddhism, most Buddhism is like Catholicism, that if you are fully ordained, you commit to a celibate path. Um, my lineage of Zen, uh, the Taigo lineage, and Japanese Zen, Japanese Zen and my lineage of Korean Zen are some of the few exceptions in Buddhism where you can be fully ordained and married. So I'm fully ordained and married. I uh, have a wife. We live in South Austin. My wife's a Montessori teacher and a yoga instructor um, by training. And then I have two daughters uh, here in school in Austin, Texas. So, um, you know, and I'm, I, I like to exercise. I like to run. Um, I used to run ultra marathons um, before I became a psychologist uh, and had kids. Uh, and I, yeah, ultras, you, you may know, as, as the name implies, so a marathon is 26.2 miles. An ultra marathon is anything longer than that. Right. Um, yeah, that's insane. I can't even imagine doing <laughs> one mile. <laughs> well, I, uh, now I'm in my 50s and uh, I don't run ultra marathons. But, uh, <laughs> but I, uh, so I feel, you know, but uh, I share that because um, and, you know, I, I, 
you know, I'm just a regular, I was a regular ultra runner, nothing special, but uh, it was challenging, you know, to run say hundred kilometer races, 50 mile races, that kind of thing. And it was also a purely mindfulness experience. Sure. You know, the harder it got, it was nature inviting me to slow down and to be kind for myself, to practice kindness amidst difficulty. And I found that the harder it got, mile 40, mile 50, mile 60, um, that was more of a invitation to learn to slow down, maybe not literally, but in my mind, can we slow our mind down even when things are difficult? And so I found, you know, running an ultra is 100% physical and it's 10,000% mental and spiritual. And that's how I got into it. But then I went back to school. Yeah. Then I went back to school and I did a PhD and had kids. Uh, I started the PhD and I think my first child was born in 2007. I started the PhD in 2008, 2009. My second child was born. So uh, you got (laughs) real busy real quick. (laughs) (laughs) I I had to let go of my attachments. Yeah. (laughs) So, but I, I like to exercise and I also like to be playful. Um, you know, probably my current two top favorite shows are Queer Eye. They just had the season in Austin come out. Uh, I'm only halfway through, so don't spoil it for me. Uh, <laughs> and then another show I like, like everybody, uh, my pandemic show is probably Ted Lasso. Cool, <laughs> you all watch cool. Ted Lasso, yeah. I don't know if you're into Legos at all, but there's actually a Queer Eye Lego set. I just right saw now. it last night. It's amazing. It's so cool. <laughs> I know, so cool. You know, and we're all just... And kind of a nod back to therapy. Um, I like the Queer Eye show. I like, you know, I, I, um, I, like, I like Ted Lasso. At the end of the day, we're all just human beings living in the world, you know? And that's the way I try to approach therapy too. One thing I say to my clients is, I like to think of us as two compassionate scientists just trying to understand. We're a team. We're in this together. I'm not perfect. I make mistakes too. I welcome my clients to disagree with me and Let's work it out. Let's figure it out together. Yeah. Appreciate that question, sir. Yeah. Well, on that note, uh, could you describe your ideal client for me? Sure, sure. Um, I love your question, and it's a very good and standard question. Part of me, and definitely there are clients I, I tend to see for sure, but I also want to be surprised. You know, part of, part of, part of therapy is the clinician grows as much as the patient, I think. And uh, so I'm always open if I can be of service. I do tend to see a lot of um, end of life patients. Uh, A typical patient might come to see me. They have a stage four cancer. Some stage four cancers are curable, but they might have say a stage four cancer, Lou Gehrig's disease, um, you know, some kind of incurable condition, COPD or something. And they might have a prognosis of two or three years to live. And then they come see me and I accompany them at the end of their life. Or I see a lot of caregivers. Being a caregiver can also be extremely challenging. Um, Sometimes the research shows that caregivers actually have shorter life expectancies than the patient themselves. Just because of, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because of the arduous nature of being a caregiver. Absolutely. Uh, I do a lot of grief and loss work. But I mean, I also see a lot of mental health professionals uh, come to see me, psychiatrists, psychologists, uh, social workers, et cetera. Um, and, and, but I mean, I think a typical, so, you know, when I'm seeing a client in the therapy room, I function as a psychologist, not a Zen priest. Um, but, you know, 
I am in private practice. Um, I do like to be open and transparent. I also do a lot of interfaith work in the community, you know. Um, so people who typically come to see me are interested in mindfulness or they might be interested in the intersections of Zen, Buddhism, and psychology, which is arguably the leading form of psychology these days. Sure, so, sure. Uh, you know, so, so yeah, t- th- those would be kind of typical patients. Um, Clients interested in mindfulness, Buddhist psychology, uh, end-of-life work, chronic health issues. Th- those would be, and, and I do tend to see a lot of clinicians, you know, like L- LPC psychologists as my clients too. Yeah. But I'm open to anybody I can be of service to. But I also, at this point in my career, uh, I only work with adults. Um, okay. Good to know. Work, yeah, yeah, yeah. I worked with kids uh, when I was like at Children's Hospital as a Zen chaplain, but now as a psychologist, I only work with adults. Um, yeah, love kids, okay. but uh, now I only work with adults. Yeah. Well, right. and I would I would also just imagine like if you were like along the lines of doing like end of life care and people who have like terminal illnesses, like I would imagine doing that with children would be insanely difficult especially after having your own, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it is. I, I like to say uh, I never make a hierarchy of suffering and uh, end of life work with kids is uh, very, very intense for sure. You know, uh, that's what I mean is the intensity of that work. would just, I, I don't know that I could do that. Right. Well, and we all have things, you know, like, uh, you know, we just have different strengths and interests right, right. And, I, I, for me though, it's not so much, um, and in my capacity as a Zen chaplain, I'll still, you know, like, you know, just in my ministerial role, I'll provide right. support to kids. But actually, me no longer seeing kids as a psychologist, to be honest, was kind of just a practical thing. Um, if you see kids as a therapist, you often have to work evenings and weekends because um, kids are yep. in school during the day. And, and quite frankly, um, to be a clinician and do end of life work, you have to have good boundaries. And, you know, I work hard during the day and then I go home to my family in the evenings. I'm with my wife and kids, you know, or I'm meditating, going for a run, but you know, I I didn't want to have a life. My experience, most kid therapists, child therapists work evenings and weekends. And I just, I love working with kids. And I actually, uh, you know, I, I, we're doing end of life work in the hospitals, hospice with kids is hard. It wasn't so much that it was just a logistics thing. I didn't want to work evenings and weekends. So yeah, yeah. that's fair. Well, yeah. And I appreciate that. And I will say like, and especially during the pandemic, this is a hard time for clinicians as well. So I do try to be very proactive on my self care. I kind of think of self care as like what's needed to do the work, you know, like if I'm going to, I mean, I've been doing end of life work for over 20 years now. Burnout is high in my field. So, uh, so I am very proactive on my self-care. You know, take right. care of your body. You're taking care of your brain. I, I, I try to take care of myself biologically and psychologically. Yeah. So what modalities do you draw upon and what sorts of evidence do you rely on to support your treatment of choice? And how do you stay up to date on new information or approaches? Ah, such a good question. And it is important to stay up to date. I love your question, Amanda, because, you know, you, you go get a master's degree, a PhD, and then you're out in the world, you know, but we always, 
human consciousness is evolving and we as clinicians need to always keep growing, changing and evolving as well. Um, I used to be a tenure track professor, so I tend to, it's fairly easy for me to stay up to date. Um, I speak at a lot of conferences. I've done some academic publishing. Um, I also do a lot of peer consultation. I'm in some peer consultation groups, which is a standard practice uh, and it's a very good practice. Uh, I read constantly. Um, I'll even give a kind of recommendation. I don't think I have it here. I think it's on my bookshelf. Actually, it is here. I'll share this with you. Um, I just reread uh, a book called, um, so I'll even share this with you. I know that this is just an audio interview for your audience, but uh, Amanda, Noah, you can see it in real time. I'm rereading this. I, I read it about 10 years ago, but it's called The Death of Sigmund Freud by Mark Edmondson. Uh, Edmondson is a professor at UT. Um, I'm not Freudian speaking of, and I'll talk a little more about what I'm like in the therapy room. I'm not Freudian, but, um, you know, I will say this, I'm not Freudian, but, you know, Freud was a pioneer. And whenever you're a pioneer, you're bound to make mistakes, which Freud did, to be clear. I'm not, you know, apologizing <laughs> for Freud, but, um, but it was interesting. Um, this book, Freud was in his 50s when I think Hitler was like in his 20s or 30s. And the book talks about kind of the last decades of Freud's life as he developed cancer and died in his 80s and how Hitler was rising to power. Freud was, of course, Jewish and Hitler was, I mean, we can't even put words on that kind of suffering. I guess genocide would be the closest, you know, but I'll be honest, it, it, it felt moving you know, and Freud was writing his book on Moses and stuff when Hitler was coming to power. And it, I'm rereading it now. I have a couple chapters left, but it felt moving to read about Freud developing his theories of psychology with the rise of fascism and uh, some of the things we're facing in our society today, just to be honest. Also, I'll note, fueled by cocaine and misogyny. Uh, yeah, that, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, for sure. Um, you know, Freud was an imperfect sentient being. Yeah. And, and I'm not, I'm not psychodynamic. I'm not psychoanalytic. Well, but... I just, I, I just love the, the history of psychology because exactly. in and of itself, it is like worthy of like knowledge and interpretation and like understanding where people came from with these things and you know it's just fascinating well i'm so glad you said that noah so we were talking about kind of like what do i do in my free time one of my nerdy dave hobbies just to be open and transparent is i love to read biographies and autobiographies uh, and documentaries too. watch a documentary but whether it's like buddhist teachers zen masters psychologists like freud um, like I just read another cool book. I read a book every one to two weeks, uh, psychology or Zen. I read a book, uh, my Christmas present was, uh, I read a book called a matter of death and life by Irv Yalom and, uh, who oh, don't yeah. Know Noah. yeah, yeah. No, uh, Irv Yalom is kind of a, uh, he was a psychiatrist who was a tenured, uh, psychology professor at Stanford and his wife, um, also was a professor at Stanford. She was a professor of French literature uh, and quite a feminist thinker. Uh, she wrote on the body and art in relation to women. I've always wanted to read some of her stuff. Um, her name is Marilyn Yalom. But anyways, um, she uh, was diagnosed with cancer. Irv Yalom is a physician. They both knew that she was terminally ill. And so they wrote a book together as she was dying. And it's called A Matter of Death and Life. He would write a chapter, she would write a chapter, and they would alternate. Cool. 
Yeah, it's super cool. Well, I would super powerful, I would say yeah. uh, impactful, but, but I'm with you, Noah. <laughs> um, we're students of the human condition. Um, and anyways, and she dies halfway through the book. And then the rest of the book is Irv Yalom talking about his first year of grief. So that's one of the things I like to do too, is I like to read. I mean, who's bigger in psychology than Freud and Yalom? You know, and Freud's right, flawed. Right. I'm not, not apologizing for Freud. <laughs> but, but, you know, I did, my, I did appreciate Freud's stand against the Nazis, for example. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like he called them out in a way. And mental health clinicians need to speak out. That's somewhat of a debate in mental health care. But yeah, and here's Irv Yalom. I mean, Irv Yalom is probably one of the top three thinkers in mental health and end of life issues. And here he is talking about the death of his own beloved wife, you know? So, um, so yeah, I try to read constantly. I, I, um, I write a newspaper column for the Statesman. I publish academically, speak at conferences, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's kind of how I try to stay current. Um, And then I think, did, and then Amanda, did you also ask kind of like my theoretical orientation in, in counseling? Oh uh, yeah, kind of what modalities you draw upon. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's a great question, Amanda. Um, and, and a lot of clients don't know that there are actually over 400 recognized schools of counseling. I had um, no idea. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, what I would also say to your, your listening audience is, you may go to one therapist and you may be like, oh, that wasn't helpful. And yeah, maybe it wasn't, you know, nobody's perfect. I make mistakes. Respectfully, no, you probably, we all make mistakes, you know, we're all right. human beings, you know, and, and then also we recognize that that's how we grow. But there's, uh, you may go to one therapist and it may not be the great, greatest fit. Well, hey, don't let that scare you away. Maybe it just wasn't the right type of therapy for that point in your life. There's all kinds of types of therapy uh, and they can look radically, radically different. They can be more structured, more free flow. Um, They can involve more homework. They can be more client centered. There's just such diversity. I primarily uh, do one of three things. If I'm very structured, I do what's called acceptance and commitment therapy. ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy is a variation of what we call, and you know, a lot of clients have heard of this. Um, it, it, ACT, ACT is a variation of what we call CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. N- not to have too much technical talk, or we can have as much technical talk as y'all and your audience wants, but ACT or acceptance commitment therapy, if I'm being honest, uh, and I ha- admittedly, I have a cultural bias because I'm a Buddhist priest, but uh, ACT honestly seems very much like Buddhism in, in, in research psychology language. So for example, you know, if you look at uh, a little technical talk, uh, if that's okay. Sure, uh, yeah, go yeah, for yeah, it. Yeah. Uh, you know, so you talk about like the six core therapeutic processes of ACT, you know, to cultivate psychological flexibility. Like say we're in a pandemic, how do we have psychological flexibility during a pandemic? So ACT talks about things like defining valued direction. What do you want your life to look like? Committed action. You know, uh, so like, you know, Noah and Amanda like to help the community. So on their own free time on a Friday afternoon, they do a podcast with other mental health clinicians. That's an example of committed action. Um, Being present. Acceptance. Acceptance is a big topic, but, you know, a good thing to talk about. Cognitive diffusion, which is like looking at your thoughts and then trying to have a little soft with softness with your thoughts so they don't you're in control of how you understand reality your conditioned automatic thoughts aren't controlling you if that makes sense um or self is context which 
kind of involves meditation and um, but it's, it's how you are in the world. Um, all those things are present in Buddhism too. So if I'm more structured, I'll often use kind of act based approaches, um, which are kind of a variation of cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, a lot of my clients are terminally ill um, and being terminal or being a caregiver for someone who's terminally ill uh, or they're grieving the loss of a child or a loss of a loved one. Um, I do work a lot with caregivers for kids or, you know, uh, parents grieving the loss of a child. Um, you know, and then I might be a little more humanistic and existential in my approach to therapy. Humanist exist- humanistic counseling focuses a lot on Um, what we call unconditional positive regard, or in Buddhism, we call compassion, (laughs) if you will. Uh, You know, and and, and, uh, humanistic counseling is a lot like spirituality. It's not not religion or spirituality, but it's akin to in the sense that um, it has an optimistic view of the human condition. The basic idea I'll make another religious parallel, if you don't mind, uh, from the Christian tradition. Uh, In Christianity, you have the parable of the sower, which you all may know. The parable of the sower, in brief, is, you know, you have some seed that gets planted on rocky ground. It doesn't take root, it dies. You have some seeds that get planted amidst the roots or or amidst the weeds. The weeds choke off the seeds. They They don't grow. You know, they die. But some seeds... Uh, And you also can see this as a cultural analogy. Some kids get good support, that kind of stuff. They flourish. The kids I worked with at the prison didn't, but they still have goodness within them. Anyways, um, some some seeds get planted in the fertile ground and then they flourish. Humanistic psychology is like that. Humanistic psychology operates on the principle that people are basically good, which I do believe, I will say. I'm quite convinced of that. Uh, Working in end-of-life care prisons, I cultural diversity settings, I have no doubt most people are basically good. Sometimes they might be a little misinformed or stressed and humans don't always do well with stress, but, you know, most human beings are basically good. And so humanistic psychology focuses on the principle that if you give people enough unconditional positive regard, they will find their way. And, And then existential counseling tends to focus on things like the limitation of human existence, death itself, what is our purpose in a sometimes seemingly meaningless world? So you can see how those styles of counseling work very, very well with end-of-life care. And then for clients who want it, and I want to be available to my clients, I'm always available with tools like mindfulness, different styles of meditation, and spiritually integrative counseling. Absolutely. So that's kind of the way I approach counseling. All right. Thanks for that, David. Sure, sure. Thank you. So jumping into more like topic specific questions um how does or doesn't your training as a zen priest impact your work with clients as a psychologist and are there any ways that you feel like this training has prepared you for things that your psychology training has not ah such a good question um so I, I think the best way I could answer that question is with a quick story, if that's all right. Is that all right? So, uh, yeah, I was the first Westerner ordained in my particular lineage of Zen. And some people don't know this term. There's a term, asceticism. And what asceticism, it's kind of a spiritual term. Asceticism means you strip away everything from the spiritual path. And so that you only focus on what is most essential to you. You know, you're focusing purely on direct and directly on what matters most in human existence. So, um, 
when I was ordained, I was training in South Korea and there was my formal ordination training involved a lot of fasting, sleep deprivation, uh, even calorie restriction. And it wasn't to be hard or unkind. It was to provide kind of a complicated template. It was a little like graduate school. You have a strong, you have a stressful template so that hopefully you develop the necessary schools, skills, the necessary skills and you develop mastery and then you learn to flourish. Um, but my Zen training was very, 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 very hard, um, like physically hard. Uh, in South Korea, they have a required draft, compulsory military service. Um, and some of my friends who were Buddhist monks uh, before I got ordained, they were like, ah, Dave, when you're over there training in Korea, your Zen training will feel more like military training than Zen training. And there was some truth to that. It was very, very hard. Um, and, and the reason I was the first Westerner to be ordained in my lineage, the Tago lineage is known to have hard training. And to be honest, just to, I'm not taking a stand here, but on a little note of cross-cultural studies, uh, I think the Zen view was that Westerners couldn't handle their training. <laughs> and uh, as a Westerner who did it, I can say I can see why they thought that. I, I, I get it. It was hard. But I'll give you two quick cultural notes. Um, women trained with the men. Hanja is a trainee. Uh, the, the aspiring nuns trained with the aspiring monks and the women did just as well, if not better. Um, and also, um, I think you had to be, the ordination ages was something like 30 to 75. And then otherwise you had to get a waiver. Like, I think you have to be at least 30. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's what it was. I, I don't kind of like running for president. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Um, but, but I share that with you because there was a lot of physical exertion, prostrations, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and people in their 70s did just as well as people in their 30s, you know. So, um, and, and I share that too because so in Zen, it's not so much about like miracles. I am talking about Zen a lot too. Hope that's okay. Uh, but, you know, the idea in Zen is that if you have good intentionality, if you're willing to work hard and you're well-trained, if you are skillful, you can do amazing things. It's kind of like a humanistic miracle. So I was doing this training. You know, I committed my life to studying Zen and psychology, but I'm over there in South Korea and it's just brutal. I miss my wife. I miss even Texas. You know, like I miss, I just miss my life, you know, and it's brutally, brutally, brutally hard. And I looked at one of my friends, a fellow Hanja, Kyung Suk, and uh, I looked at him and I said, you know, I, I kind of was despairing. I kind of was losing heart a little bit, to be honest, you know, it just felt so hard. And I wondered, you know, I had spent years training for this and I wondered if I could do it. And I was kind of despairing. And I looked at my friend Kyung Suk and I said, why are we doing this? This is so hard. And my friend Kyung Suk said, we're Buddhists. This is the Buddhist way. We endure. And, and I've always taken, I mean, that was almost 20 years ago. And I keep that lesson with me. We endure. So psychology, you know, you go do a master's, you do a PhD, that's great. You get all this academic learning. Thank you so much. You know, research matters, data matters, you know, you want research-based treatments. Yes, yes, yes. Um, but you go to grad school and you get all this like factual knowledge, which is great. You get clinical training, which is good. But to sit in a chair, whether you're doing it in person or telehealth, and to sit in the kind of sacred space with another human being who's 
you know, has been sexually assaulted or was in combat. I do a lot of trauma work too. Um, you know, their child died. They're terminally ill. They don't know if they're going to die or not, but, you know, they're on their f- second or third line of chemotherapy. You know, to sit in that kind of space during a pandemic, for example, or when there's societal unrest, it's just hard. It's just hard. You know, you can be a Buddhist monk and certified in mindfulness-based stress reduction, and it's still hard. And so what I think, one of the things that Zen gave me, besides a very good knowledge of uh, meditation, was um, it did show me how to be kind to myself, and it did show me how to endure. And I don't know where else, (laughs) you don't necessarily learn how to be kind to yourself in grad school. Uh, Grad school is an exercise in enduring, um, (laughs) but uh, not the same. I mean, Zen is, Zen shapes my life, to be honest with you. And, And I, you know, I might have Christian clients who are fundamentalists, totally cool. You know, I try to have compassion for all sentient beings, but, but Zen is like a good friend that's always there for me and that keeps okay. me going. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. Yeah. Now, I know there is a Zico diagnosis for it's described as religious or spiritual problem. Yeah. Using air quotes. Um, <laughs> sure. What are some examples of clinical concerns that people come to therapy with you that meets that criteria? Well, oh, I love your question, though. Uh, and, and you too, Amanda, your questions are amazing. Um, you know, and as, as you know, Noah, you know, in the DSM, um, which for the audience, in case anybody, most people know what the DSM is, but it's, it's kind of the Bible of, ment- of psychology. You know, it's kind of the diagnosable conditions that maybe an insurance company might reimburse or whatever. But um, if you read the language for uh, religious or spiritual problems in the DSM, it's actually really uh, pretty traditional, really religious. It's like, um, you know, if you're having a loss of faith in God or converting to a different religion, like it's pretty religious, which is cool. But I say that because, and we can get into this more, for better or for worse, uh, religion and spirituality are fundamental to the human experience. I would even say that someone is could be atheist or agnostic, and, and you can be Zen Buddhist and atheist or agnostic too, by the way. But um, you know, even atheism and agnosticism can be a form of spirituality. Um, but, but these kind of questions of purpose, connection, meaning, they're universal across cultures and across time. Um, they matter to people. And especially when you're talking about trauma and end-of-life care, they really matter. So, um, you know, I mean as a psychologist, and this is a little bit in the difference, like what is the difference between a psychologist and a Zen priest? I mean, you can absolutely argue, like the tradition itself, Zen defines itself um, as kind of a a form of psychology, like within the tradition and even the text. Um, So Zen is very, very, I mean, it has a a theory of psychopathology, a theory of treatment, treatment interventions like mindfulness. Um, But I I think that uh, one of the differences is the question of boundaries, you know, the question of how much you disclose, the question of reciprocity in like a Zen minister versus psychologist. But when patients come to see me, I'm operating as a psychologist. And I think one of your questions too, Noah, is like, um, you know, what is a first session like? In the first session, I cover confidentiality and all that kind of stuff. And I also say, 
hey, if you come see me in private practice, you probably found me by my website. You probably know that I'm a Zen. I write a column for the Statesman called Zen for Daily Living. You probably know that I'm a Zen monk. Um, you know, Zen is great. If you want to talk about Zen, we can absolutely integrate that here. But legally, I'm functioning as a psychologist. And so I kind of cover that. But most, a lot of people come to see me because they're Christian, they're spiritual, they're Buddhist, you know, they're Muslim or Hindu, you know, spirituality or religion or a, con a conflict with it. You know, maybe they're gay and they experienced homophobia in their church, for example. Religion can be healing or traumatic. Um, you know, because I do a lot of end of life work, because I do a lot of trauma work, um, the research is clear that people who suffer from seminal challenges tend to draw on some form of religion or spirituality, which are similar but not exactly the same. Um, so just because the kind of clients I see, this is often at the fore of what we're talking about. Yeah. And I don't shy away from it. And you were right earlier, Noah. Um, a lot of clinicians feel awkward talking about this kind of stuff. I mean, I went to divinity school, so I'm pretty good with it. Right, right. <laughs> so, you know, thinking about, you know, one of, one of the things that you named essentially in talking about this Zico diagnosis for religious or spiritual problem um, was essentially religious trauma. Um, yeah, so my yeah, question yeah. are, what are your thoughts on religious trauma? And do you work with people who struggle with this? And if so, what is your approach? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, do I work with people with religious trauma? Yes. Uh, is religious trauma real? Yes. So in a nutshell, uh, and then we'll talk about my approach. Religious trauma, what is trauma in general? In general, trauma is you experiencing something hurtful, something shocking, something acute, and then you re-experience it. And it's a threat to you or someone you care about. And it causes anxiety, it causes depression, it causes a loss of hope, and there's a, a re-experiencing, almost an assault, an ongoing assault of what you've experienced. Um, there's a great book, um, it's called Trauma Stewardship, and uh, I just read that a couple weeks ago, and the reason I mentioned that book is we tend to think of trauma as... Um, Car well, so here's the interesting thing about trauma. Trauma is much more common than we realize. Uh, we're living in traumatic times, literally, with the pandemic and stuff happening in our society. We think about trauma, I think in pop culture notions of trauma, we think about trauma like the military, police officers, and to be sure, um, we were just at war for about 20 years in the Middle East, our longest war in American history, interestingly. Um, you know, People in the military, people in law enforcement absolutely experience trauma. The reality is, the research is very clear, the most common kinds of trauma, and I want to talk about spiritual trauma too, but the most common kinds of trauma are actually sexual assault, uh, family of origin trauma, and car accidents. Um, dating violence, um, violence in our family, violence in our family growing up, like child abuse, um, and then car accidents. Those are by far the most common forms of trauma. Other trauma matters too. Uh, it's not an either or, but when we think about trauma, it is as a society worth, th worth thinking about what are the biggest sources of trauma and how do we deploy our resources and conduct our training. But anyways, um, so trauma occurs. But trauma, like th this book, um, 
Trauma Stewardship that I liked. It was written by some social workers, very good book. It talks about how those aren't the only forms of trauma, but we experience trauma in our society. You know, for example, with the pandemic, um, over 800,000 Americans have died. I actually wrote a newspaper column on this. Um, and I, I went to the VA website and uh, I added up, according to the VA website, all the deaths that have occurred in American wars for American military, men and women in our armed forces, from World War I in 1972, sorry, sorry, not 72, 1917, through uh, our most recent Gulf War, which was, uh, I guess, Operation Enduring Freedom, um, if I'm getting uh, the name right, um, which was 20 years in the Middle East. If you add up all our wars since uh, World War I, our nation has been at war for 40 years out of just a little over 100 years. Almost 40% of the last 100 years we've been at war. I don't, you know, it's worth reflecting on that. But if you add up all those military deaths, they're over 200, they're under 200,000 less than have died of COVID in a year and a half. Think about that. 40 years of American war, exactly, have killed less Americans than 18 months of the pandemic. According to the VA website, um, you know, and the Johns Hopkins website, which tracks deaths in the United States from COVID. Think about that. How do we talk about death in the United States? Think, you know, how do we honor military deaths and how do we honor COVID deaths? It's interesting to think about, you know? Um, so we're living in traumatic times right now. You can log on to Facebook, you can log on to social media, and you can see shocking images of suffering. We are living in traumatic times. And so there's societal trauma and religion can be a part of that. Religion can be so healing, so healing, and it can be so traumatic. There's power in religion. Uh, religion, you know, especially Western religions, tend to focus on things like heaven and hell. And so they can literally say, Noah, Amanda, you're going to spend eternity in paradise, or you're going to spend eternity in hellfire and brimstone. And um, one of the ways that religious trauma occurs, unfortunately, is around sexual orientation. There's other examples too. But, you know, um, you could be, say, for example, gay or lesbian. And, you know, one of my favorite shows is Queer Eye, and I'm actually going back and re-watching it. So if you don't mind, I'll use that as an example, because I think there was a really good episode. Uh, one, of the, one of the Fab Five, he's called, uh, his name is Bobby Burke, and he's actually, I think, from Texas. You know, and he told this moving story in the first season of Queer Eye of, you know, he would go to church, and he was, he was going to church every day, you know, because that's what his family what culture was, and he loved Christianity, and he loved God, and he also was gay, just happened to be attracted to, to other, other boys, other, other people of the same gender. And his church told him he was going to hell. I mean, I can't even imagine how painful that is. Something you love, a religious organization is telling you that you're gonna go to hell forever as a child. That's so scary. Of course you re-experience that kind of pain. I mean, saying you're going to hell is kind of the ultimate form of power and the ultimate form of pain and trauma. So is there religious trauma? Unfortunately, yes, there is. Yes, there is. Unfortunately, all kinds of ways, shaming people about their bodies, um, telling people that there's, there's limitations on their existence based on who they are. 
that includes women, for example. Some denominations will not ordain women. Um, yeah, religion can be very hurtful and sometimes traumatic. Absolutely. And, and so then there's the question of working with that. <laughs> and should we talk about that? Right. Yeah. So, so what is your approach to that being, yeah, yeah. being a Zen priest, you know? Sure, sure. Uh, so it's a tricky balance because you don't want to proselytize. You're not there to convert, which is another way that Zen is nice. And as a psychologist, Zen is not a proselytizing religion. You know, um, other religions pros, and I'm sure here and there you might find some Zen monks who do that kind of stuff. But in general, the Buddha was very clear. You give with an open hand. You don't give with one hand and take with another. You know, as a good Zen priest, I'm not here to tell you what to believe. I just want to be kind. If you'd like my help, I'll help if I can. And I just want to understand you as much as possibly can so that I can help, I can help understand where you want to go and then put you in the path where you want to be. I'm not here to tell you to be like me. So that's another way that Zen is very, very much like psychology. You know, in psychology or Zen, we're not there to proselytize. And you know, and Bobby Burke talked about this in Queer Eye. Um, it's easy to internalize religious guilt and shame, you know, because you have these people in authority from childhood, they're authorities in your life, and they kind of seemingly hold the keys to the kingdom of the afterlife and all this kind of stuff. It's hard not to internalize that kind of oppressive structure, quite frankly. And so, and, and you can see people really be, in religion, this happens all the time. Unfortunately, people can just punish themselves and beat up on themselves and shame themselves when they've done nothing, nothing, nothing wrong, you know? So one, you can't be too he heavy handed as a clinician, you know, or you'll just push people in the opposite direction. Two, right. another, another key thing is right off the bat, you do need to be knowledgeable. Like cultural diversity is extremely important and complex, uh, and religion is its own form of culture, you know? And so to kind of be able to relate and to understand and to know the kind of cultural norms and trappings and language, all that kind of stuff. And I think that's one way that therapists get in trouble is they just don't have that kind of knowledge and then they don't feel as comfortable. So having that kind of knowledge, uh, and, and you know, it's just a little, one little resource. I actually, on my website, I try to make it help. I try to make my website a free community resource for the public. And uh, I have a lot of resources on there for clinicians who want to do this kind of work. But I think the first thing is too beyond some of it is just your internal work as a clinician to do this kind of work. Like you've got to be knowledgeable about comparative religion. There's also a certain fortitude internally as a, all forms of clinical work are important. All forms of clinical work have their own, um, challenges and opportunities and skill sets. But if you're going to do trauma, if you're going to do end of life care, there are some challenges inherent in the work, <laughs> you know? So, um, so again, you have to have the ability to endure and you have to have self-care mechanisms in place to do this kind of work. But in addition to that, specifically with spiritual trauma, in some ways, um, uh, the basic way I would approach it is the first thing is I just want to understand what you want from life. Like uh, in acceptance and commitment therapy, you might call that defining valued directions. You know, Amanda, Noah, whoever it is, what do you want your life to look like? 
And the next thing is, cool. Now, where's that coming from? <laughs> you know, like, what are the influences? You know, and I just right. want to learn. Let's just learn. Let's just discover, you know. And then those influences, do you really agree with those influences? And that's cool if you do. What do you actually think? You know, not what I'm telling you or the Buddha or Jesus or your minister is telling you. What do you believe? And then another question I like to look at um, is, how is all that working for you? How's that working for you? You know? and, and if you ask those kind of questions, you'll get some good responses in my experience. But that's my kind of general approach. And, and I do think, too, you've got to have, you know, so... It, you know, you can probably tell, or if you go to my website, you could definitely tell, like, I am what you would call progressive. And, and I don't mind saying that publicly. I, I support people who are le lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgendered, you know, for example. And, um, you know, uh, if you come to me and, and you say, I'm gay, I'm going to be like, that's cool. It's completely normal and natural and healthy, because it is normal and natural and healthy. But you have to meet the client where they're at and not be too pushy or too much of a cheerleader, you know? Um, the, and that's a, that's a big part of any kind of therapy is the client, you have to be client-centered. You have to be responsive and attentive to your client. You have to also be at their pace and go when, where they're ready to go when they're ready, if that makes sense. So you, Well, you just meeting the client where they're at, right? Yeah, that's yeah, essentially yeah. what we're talking about. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to be respectful, you know, uh, even to belief systems that you don't agree with. And that can sometimes be a challenge, but um, you have to have that kind of, you know, balance too. And yeah. 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 So, but uh, yeah, it's a rich and challenging area, but I'm glad to do it. Yeah. Okay. And, and also I'd even, you know, I mean, I can talk all day about this, but I'd even add, I mean, if you look at the United States or just the world, religion can cause a lot of tension, you know, and there's a lot of examples of that. And so what about in the therapeutic space if we find some healing? It's, it's not just good on, a, on an individual micro level, it's good on a macro societal level as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. Okay. So seeing as though you're Zen clergy and a psychologist. Yes. What are some examples of dual relationships that you've run across and how do you go about handling those and like setting boundaries, even when I would imagine it's difficult to do that, you know? Uh, yes, it's, uh, I'm a little fortunate in that. So I am a Zen priest, but, uh, and I do lead a Zen group, uh, but my Zen group is very small um, and it's online, you know, due to the pandemic. But um, my primary form of Zen work is, kind of interreligious dialogue, you know, like I just did a, you know, four Sundays in a row, I did a Buddhist reading at St. Andrew's, a Presbyterian church in town, or, you know, uh, my, <laughs> I, I, I even have kind, I, I see clients during the day, Monday to Friday, I do, I do psychology stuff in the evenings, but more Zen stuff in the evenings or weekends. Um, I, I try to have kind of firm boundaries, even around time when I do that. Um, the American Psychological Association general position is dual relationships are not prohibited as long as they're not contraindicated. So it's always a case of um, what's best for the client in the moment. Um, I have a psychologist, I have a friend who's a psychologist in Galveston, for example, which is, you know, kind of a tiny little community. And my, my friend was like, 
you know, if I never saw a client in counseling um, who I know personally, I wouldn't have any clients because we live on a tiny island. Everybody knows everybody. So the key is having clear boundaries and make sure it's not contraindicated for the client. But um, I, I, I would not see, I mean, I, I guess I would never say never, but I, I don't see like therapy clients who are, you know, my Zen parish, if you would, you know, I don't even use that language, but members of my Zen group, that would, that would probably be the biggest demarcator. Um, I'm also not there to proselytize. Um, you also don't socialize with your clients, some kind of just key benchmark. Am I answering your question though, Noah? Like, <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. <laughs> okay. I have so many thoughts. I'm so excited. <laughs> and I'm just, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, there, and, and there's so much to say about all this stuff, you know, it'd be impossible to have, like, right. I, I, I think, I think it would be probably an eight to 10 hour podcast if we really like, <laughs> which could know. be fun, but <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think Amanda has a, a, another question for you. Cool. Cool. I do. So the APA Code of Ethics for Licensed Psychologists states that psychologists cannot belittle or discriminate against a particular religion or spiritual belief. Yeah. Uh, but what do you do if you feel a belief that a client holds is harmful to the recovery? Like, how do you challenge that belief in a way that doesn't discriminate against that person's beliefs? Good question. Some of that would almost be kind of, a, you know, the spe specifics of a situation. But in kind of general terms, I would say there are certain things that are not okay legally or ethically, physical abuse, sexual abuse, financial impropriety. I mean, there are certain things that occur. And if they occur, whether they're under religion or not, they say become things that you have to report to adult protective services or child protective services. Therapy is confidential and it needs to be that way. Sometimes for the good of the individual, you know, if they're being assaulted in the name of religion, which has happened, um, you know, speaking of trauma, um, there are certain things, and you go over this when somebody comes, you know, uh, the first time they come to see you in counseling and it's in all of the paperwork and that kind of stuff. But there are certain things that just legally and ethically you're a, you're a mandated reporter on. So you do have to keep that in mind. Um, there may be things like, um, I'll give you a real world example. So for example, um, there are definitely forms of religion um, that assign different roles based on your gender. For, for example, right, uh, certain religions will say the man is the head of the household. Right. And uh, yeah, and you know, or the, the man should, and that becomes things like men should lead the prayers or whatever, you know. Um, I am a feminist and I think that men and women are equal. Uh, and I think men or women are both equally spiritual if they choose to be spiritual, you know. So, uh, for example, a client could come to see me um, about gender issues and religion. Uh, and this client, male or female, might uh, have um, views about gender um, that maybe are limiting and maybe even aren't, are hindering them and not serving them. But if I come out and I just say, that's sexist, you know, uh, that church needs to change, you know, get me on the phone with that minister or that's holding you back. Um, therapeutically, kind of like Noah was saying a second ago, we just want to be present to the client and, and we want to be skillful, you know. So if you push too hard, you're probably going to push them in a direction you don't want to go. So you always have to be respectful. Um, 
Am I answering your question? Okay, cool, cool, cool. Um, I have kind of an offshoot question of that. What about, like, you know, you just described somebody who maybe doesn't have the best views of women. Term that comes to mind for me is like the incel community. And then uh, we have, and then we have this whole, uh, like, process right now around the QAnon beliefs and and everything that's linked to that it like is that something like how would you approach the client specifically when it comes to that like totally understanding where they're at but like are there points where you just like that doesn't make any sort of logical reasonable sense you know what I mean like are there points where after after a period of time, you feel like you've grown that rapport to the extent where you feel like you can challenge those things a little bit more. Yes. Um, I, yeah, and I'm trying to kind of keep things de-identified, but uh, let's say, I mean, I'm familiar with say kind of, uh, and, and I have, my understanding of say the incel community is that, uh, and I'm not an expert on it, but they, they, it's, it's even weird to kind of say this stuff out loud. Uh, but I think they, they view women, my, from what I've read about the incel community, they view women as um, hurtful and exclusionary of men. And I, I don't know, they, they, you know, with incel stuff, and I, I, have, I have worked with some of that, um, I, I kind of, this is, this is one reason I love psychology. Psychology, it's a social science. Um, and so you are just kind of looking at the data. And I do think you can kind of compassionately say, huh, wow. So a couple ways you can explore that therapeutically. One is to just kind of say, I do believe, uh, even in working in cross-cultural settings, um, people are basically good. People want to alleviate suffering. And I think a lot of times people discriminate because it's just a lack of awareness. Like the research actually shows this. The more people work together and actually live together, they just get along more, which is why cities are more diverse than isolated communities, you know? Um, and so with, with incel kind of stuff where you have these stereotypes about women that are not true and well, it's stereotypes helping. about women, but it, it's also a group of people who feels entitled to sex with women and like severely objectify women. Uh, there's, you, you know, there's, yeah, yeah. there's, there's that belief that like a woman, if a man asks a woman to have sex with him, then like she should say yes. Like, and, and when she doesn't, then that leads to all this backlash and like, you know, People well, getting upset and then taking like, uh, you know, extreme measures toward, um, you know, sometimes harming people. Right. Uh, so let's be really clear. Like uh, sex without consent is assault. Right. And it's, it, it's a crime. And, and like, like just and, and sexual assault is at epidemic levels in our society, too. So, I mean, like that's an extremely important thing to talk about. Um, and some of it is the degree to incel stuff like like. Sex without consent is, is, is rape, and that is a crime, and that's traumatic, and it's morally wrong, full stop. You know? um, now, we can work with uh, criminal attitudes to try and find healing, which is good for society, but assault is assault, period, you know? and, uh, and, and full stop. For things like um, you know, this kind of, I mean, 
and, and I appreciate you, Noah, putting it at like a, a deeper level of incel thought, some level of, you know, people will be in the incel, incel community at kind of different levels. I think when people first get in, there's a lot of like object, objectifying of women, obviously, but also just misinformation about women. And uh, yeah, and, and so with any of those things, you know, ah, one is I, I do try to un- relate to the emotion isn't necessarily the right word, but I try to understand the emotion. I, I think, and I'm not trying to make excuses for this kind of stuff, but I think a lot of the men in the incel community are isolated and alone and they're lonely and they're hurting. I'm not justifying, just trying to understand. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think it's a it's a result of probably years of rejection and um, un, not having any sort of knowledge about things like boundaries and consent and you know trauma and you know all these all these other things. Right. Um, and I think that you know therapy is helpful in that. But one thing that I don't think is helpful is. Um, like social media and media in general putting out these ideas of what relationships are of what relationships look like that have no basis in actual reality like thinking about any romantic comedy i've ever seen that is not even close to reality and i think a lot of people especially younger generations come up believing that that's what their relationships are going to look like Right. And it is just so skewed from anything that is is real, you know, yeah. and and I find a lot of people struggle with that, even people who have healthier ideas of what relationships look like. It's like all these shoulds of like, oh, well, this is what I was told my relationship should look like. And then don't end up in healthy relationships because they're chasing these other ideas that media has told them is what it's supposed to look like. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Well, no, I think you make a tremendously important point that also is relevant to a lot of things in our society. I mean, I agree 100%. And I think there's truth in what you're saying for other dimensions of our society as well. I mean, social media, and, and you're focusing on the incel community, which is very it's true. just an example. Right, yeah. right. But, but, you're, but, but it, yeah, I know I, I totally resonate with what you're saying kind of an allied phenomenon. And I don't mean to, to shift us too much, but the prob- one of the problems with social media is it operates on algorithms of anger and it, it puts us in I- increasingly isolated communities and it has right. this kind of us-them mentality. Incel culture is a perfect example of that, but it isolates us and it creates tribal, it, it, ha- it spreads misinformation and it creates tribalism and it's it's, it's a real factor that is often hurtful these days in our society. Not yeah. always, but often. And, and incel culture is a primary example of that, Noah. And I guess therapeutically, coming back to the question of kind of therapy uh, and these things, what I do try to do, it's sort of like if you work with an anger management client. Um, a client may do horrific things, and I'm not saying that's okay. A lot of anger management clients they hate their anger themselves and they just don't know how to get out of it. And so if you can tune into that powerlessness or that sadness or that grief, because somebody may explode in anger and then have real grief and shame after it. And if you can relate to the humanity on that level, that's where we find transformation. And and I will say we do need to work on transformation. You know, um, 
we need to bridge these cultural gaps in our society. I'm not saying things are okay. There is traumatic, illegal, and immoral things happening in our society right now. And, I mean, one idea of spirituality is that we work for the good of the future. And, and we need to do that in our society. Yeah. So, um, Amanda, you have another really good question. I do. Are there ways in which religion can harm or go too far with healing and therapy? Like how people yeah. can over rely on religion to cure themselves, being blinded by it and not really fixing the problems that they have. Oh, like sure. Pray the gay away. Like, like pray the gay away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, 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 actually, I think your wise question, Amanda, operates on a number of levels. For sure, you'll hear the pray the gay away. <laughs> I don't to say that, you know, like the kind of that word coming out of my mouth, but that, that's the stuff you'll hear. You're right. Um, so I'll, let, let's take your good question on a number of levels. You know, the pray the gay away is, is definitely an example of looking on a surface level, not looking on a research-based real human level and exacerbating suffering. Because again, being gay, being bi, being lesbian is completely normal, natural, and healthy. I, I just cannot emphasize that enough. And unfortunately, speaking of tribalism, um, people get, I'll use myself as an example, and it's kind of embarrassing. I grew up, this isn't embarrassing. I grew up in the South. That's not embarrassing. Um, but the, I, I grew up in a very, I went to very conservative Christian schools, my dad was a fighter pilot in Vietnam. I had an uncle who was a real Navy SEAL in Vietnam. Like I grew up in a very Southern military conservative Christian culture. I was initially raised a uh, Roman Catholic and I was taught to believe that being gay was a sin. That's just what I knew. And so some of what we need to do is just break down these societal barriers People might be homophobic or discriminatory, but they don't even know it. That doesn't mean it's okay, but sometimes just learning about other people breaks down these barriers. Um, and so I think like, the problem is that people justify their beliefs with their religion. That is, sure. that, yeah. that is where the issue lies, in my opinion. Right. And, and so sometimes you're talking about, like, am I wearing my hat as a Zen priest doing social justice on, like, kind of a wider macro scale? Or am I wearing my psychologist hat where a person comes to see me in the room? Um, what I would say is that um, if you say pray the gay away, well, you're not looking at the real issue. You're, you're kind of doing, and I think this is pointing back to Amanda's initial good question, which is you're looking at the surface thing and you're not actually, which isn't even psychology. You want to get to the roots of the problem, you know? Um, but also... And, and you can have this in any religion. It's not just Western religions. Uh, you know, you could say, oh, it's, you know, I just need to be more mindful or this is just my karma. Karma is definitely something that gets misrepresented. Uh, and, and you can definitely use religion or spirituality as a shield um, to actually, it's a defense mechanism. It's a way of not looking at what's actually going on. Um, and I, I think, too, that re so religion can operate on that level of it gets in the way. Religion can also just operate on the, on the level of exacerbating shame, exacerbating yeah. guilt. Uh, and, and that's also very dangerous. And that, that kind of steers us back into religious trauma because that stuff, 
anything can be overcome, but that kind of early childhood shaming, your brain is still forming, it's very powerful, very powerful. Yeah, so can religion be harming? Sure. And as clinicians, we do have an obligation to, um, with whatever is the presenting concern, addiction, suicidal ideation, it may have nothing to do with religion. We just want to kind of look at the core beliefs, you know, look at the formations of what's going on and make sure we're really alleviating the client's discomfort when they're leaving our counseling room. Yeah. Yeah. Great questions. So what resources do you turn to in order to educate yourself on a belief system uh, of a religious or spiritual belief of a client that you're unfamiliar with? Uh, great question. One, I'll sometimes just ask my clients, you know, yeah. like, I'll be like, ah, like, who do you read? You know, like, oh, you think uh, men are the head of the household? Huh. Um, what are some theologians that, 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 you know, influence that, you know, and I might go read it, you know, so, you know, we're always learning from our clients. Um, I, I mean, and so in terms of like, how do I keep myself current with uh, comparative religion? I'm in dialogue constantly with religious ministers, uh, including ones who are more conservative than me, conservative and liberal. Um, And then I do a lot of reading and writing constantly. um, And I'm just in kind of professional dialogues, conferences, speaking at conferences as well as going to them, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I read a lot of scholars of comparative religion. Um, you know, some of my favorite are, are Ninian Smart, for example, uh, or John Bowker. Uh, if, if people want a couple resources, John Bowker is a fun one. Uh, he's actually a Christian theologian and he's a scholar of comparative religion. And, and some people don't know that you can study religion academically, just like you study history, philosophy, uh, physics, anything else. You use the tools of academia to study religion. Uh, and, I, and I try to read a lot of researchers of religion Um, as well as um, other psychologists who look at the intersections of. uh, One thing that's helpful for me is Division 36 of the American Psychological Association. They're they're kind of, um, they're the uh, psychological study of religion. So there's some kind of professional groups out there doing this kind of research, that stuff. But, you know, Amanda, your point is well taken because as clinicians, we're always students. We're always trying to learn more. We're always trying to stay current. Absolutely. And religion is vast and always changing itself. So, right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're clearly well studied and I'm sure there are very few that you don't know about. But it, as you said, it's very fluid and there are, you know, there are a we lot. We can all learn more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we can all learn more. Absolutely. Yeah. Great question. Uh, so there was an article that you had shared with us uh, that had uh, one of the things that I, I liked that you said was that uh, Buddhism, as opposed to more Western religions, you know, doesn't really have uh, a deity or, uh, you know, the proselytization. It's uh, a tricky word. Yeah, proselytization that the other Western religions does. So there's not a not as difficult of a a break in scientific tradition as there are in Western religions. So my question is, how does the lack of traditional scientific divorce from Buddhism impact the tools that you borrow from it to treat a client versus the tools that you borrow from more Western religions that have had more struggles with integration with the scientific method? Oh, it's such a good question. Um, I almost feel like your question is so rich. We need like a graduate seminar for it. But, <laughs> uh, in brief, I guess the way I would answer it is, I mean, it's certainly true, like in Buddhism, um, if you read what's called the Pali Canon, the Pali Canon is like the Old Testament of Buddhism. It's, it's the original collection of texts 
it's the oldest collection we have that's still in existence um, that all schools of Buddhism read, at least to some degree. Uh, you know, it's like the Old Testament of Buddhism, good way to think of it. Um, in the Pali Canon, the Buddha, he defines, him, he describes himself as a scientist. Um, he, he describes Buddhism as um, a science. And uh, so, for example, the seminal, probably the four seminal, the four kind of seminal teachings of Buddhism are what we call the four noble truths. Um, the first noble truth, second, third, and fourth noble truth. The first noble truth is life is suffering. Now, we want to unpack these because taking them out of the cultural context, they might seem different. Um, they're much more kind of humanistic and positive than they might initially seem. But uh, the first noble truth is life is suffering. The second noble truth is suffering comes from desire. Not that all desire is bad. It's how to use it. The third noble truth is that uh, desire can be overcome. The fourth noble truth is the path of overcoming suffering. Okay. The first noble truth, life is suffering. Well, that's like a diagnosis. That's a statement of the medical condition. The second noble truth, suffering comes from desire. Well, that's the etiology of the disease. You know, um, the third noble truth, desire can be overcome. Well, that's the prognosis. We can do this. The fourth noble truth is the treatment path. Like the Buddha formulated uh, Buddhism along his understanding of medicine at the time. Um, the Buddha, interestingly, uh, in, in Pali, kind of the oldest Buddhist language, there's no word for faith. There's not a word for faith. Um, the closest word you come to basically would be translated as kind of um, confidence in the evidence. And that's very key. Uh, it's not that faith is bad, but in Buddhism, it's a lot like psychology or the empirical method. Right. What is the evidence for the claim? So there is a way, and this is why you have things like mindfulness-based stress reduction, dialectical behavior therapy, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, I mean, the truth is the historical Buddha kind of, you know, lived 2,500 years ago in kind of Northern India, Nepal region. But the thing, if you read the Pali Canon, it's basically like reading Irv Yalom and existential psychology or Carl Rogers and humanistic psychology or, um, you know, acceptance and commitment uh, therapy theorists and clinicians. Like, it's basically the same thing. And I'm just, you know, the terminology is different, but it's the same stuff. I mean, the Buddha kind of anticipated Freud by 2000 years and the Buddha just also added meditation. So, I mean, there is a way that this stuff just really fits in research-based psychology. And so you can even have things like acceptance and commitment therapy, which draw, I mean, and if you read Stephen Hayes, he's using poly terms like Upaya, Marsha Linehan and DBT is quoting Shunryu Suzuki and using Zen terms. Like you can use these concepts and they're there's just research that supports them regardless of like mindfulness meditation can change our neuroplasticity mm -hmm. um, regardless of if you're a Buddhist or not. I mean, there is just some empirical truth and research behind some of these things um, with, with, and, and so like, you know, taking mindfulness, which arose in Buddhism and integrating into psychology, it's just an easy, it's like a duck in water. Like it's just a logical transition in some ways. Um, for, but for faith-based things too, uh, they can be very skillful. 
um, it, it just depends on the client and the client's cultural context. You know, Christian, I like if you have a client who say is terminally ill, they're in hospice and, and the idea of an afterlife, um, maybe we don't have the same level of empirical data to support that. Uh, but that can be super comforting, you know, to a client who's terminally ill or maybe their child is terminally ill. So things like that, a belief in the afterlife, you always you let the client lead you and you see where their beliefs are. And, and then you, I mean, it's kind of like any other dimension of cultural diversity. Cultural diversity is so rich and each area is its own specialization. And, and religion is just an example of that. But you affirm where the client is. Um, and I think one of the biggest problems, so there's actually research about this too. I don't know if this was in the article I shared with y'all, but um, one of the interesting things is that um, the more educated people come, uh, for whatever reason, uh, the less likely they are to be religious uh, or <laughs> spiritual. Uh, we can draw our own conclusions from that, but, <laughs> uh, but uh, which would be a rich discussion. But um, for better or for worse, the more educated people, well, this is where it can get you in trouble as a clinician, mental health clinician. The more educated people become in general, the less likely they are to be religious. Uh, so yeah, yeah. So you have a psychiatrist, psychologist, LPC social worker, you know, high degree of education, less likely to be religious than their patient population. Now, in a way that may or may not even matter. Like if it's just garden variety, depression or addiction, probably not a thing. But if you're dealing with trauma, chronic illness, terminal illness, um, the research is very clear. The more severe the psychopathology or the life change, a pandemic, um, warfare, losing a job, death of a spouse, bankruptcy, house burns down, like kind of adjustment disorder stuff too that's really severe. The more severe the presenting concern, the more likely the client is to turn to religion and spirituality. Also, on a note of cultural diversity, um, if the client is from a group that is marginalized, women, indigenous people, people of color, uh, people who... Um, are poor, uh, economically suffering. The more likely the group is disenfranchised, the more likely they are to draw on religion and spirituality. So, you know, there's all these kind of factors influencing the client. Then you have this real well-educated mental health clinician who's more likely to not be religious. Uh-oh, cultural gap. You know, so one of the biggest things clinicians face is just a, a lack of knowledge of cultural diversity that is the tapestry of cultural diversity in religion and spirituality. So, and it's tough, right? Because you go to grad school, you're studying ethics, which is important. You're studying psychopathology or neurology or all this kind or CBT, all this kind of stuff that you must learn. But we need to get maybe if you're going to do this kind of this work, you need to have this kind of training. You have need to have this kind of knowledge. So, yeah. yeah. That being said, I don't think I've ever been to a therapist that hasn't suggested mindfulness. Uh, yeah, for sure. And, and I mean, mindfulness definitely has a ton of research on the values behind it. You know, the one thing, I, and we could talk about mindfulness all day too, but <laughs> what, what, one thing I would offer briefly, and, and hey, I'm Buddhist monk. I'm all in for the mindfulness, you know, uh, but mindfulness is just one meditation technique among many. Right. The, right. Meditation itself is just training your brain. That's mm -hmm. what it is. And the best type of brain training is the one that works for you. Right. Yeah. So, but yeah, I definitely a lover of mindfulness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> uh, do you find that there's a greater, lesser, or equal level of success in treatments with a Buddhist integration with therapeutic treatment than a Western religious or spiritual belief in integration with treatment? You know, such a good uh, question. I, I, I don't know. I mean, my honest answer is just depends on the client. You know, there are yeah. for sure, like I'll use my dad as an example. My dad is still alive. Um, my dad, you know, he grew up in the South, very conservative politically, spiritually. Um, <laughs> here's my dad. I love my dad. Uh, my dad, um, my parents got married in the 60s. Uh, my dad finished his master's degree early uh, because he wanted to join the Marines and voluntarily go fight in uh, Vietnam. Like, how many people finish grad school early right. to voluntarily fight <laughs> in a war? Um, you might be able to infer some things, <laughs> but this is not therapy, so we'll let that go. Anyways, I'm just joking around with y'all. <laughs> um, you know, and so my mom was like, uh, my dad's name is Fred. My mom was like, Fred, I do not want you joining the Marines during Vietnam War. So my dad was like, okay, I'll be a fighter pilot. Uh, so... Um, I'm not going to give any interpretation of any of that. I will just say uh, my dad is not vegetarian and Zen Buddhist. And, uh, I'm vegetarian. Um, you know, my dad had a 20 year active duty career in the Navy and it's very wow. rare to be active duty for 20 years in the Navy. Um, the only reason he got out of the Navy was he had cancer and they forced him to take a medical discharge. Otherwise he would have stayed in the Navy. But so if I sit there with my dad and you don't perform family, you don't perform therapy for family members. Let's be clear. You know, uh, you do not do that. Um, but you know, if, you know, my dad wasn't my father, biological relative, and he came in to see me for therapy. And I dropped a lot of Buddhist terms with, you know, you know, on emptiness or no self or nirvana or whatever, uh, or even the term mindfulness, that's just not going to resonate with my dad. You know? yeah. So, so it's all about being client centered. And as the Buddha would say, the Buddha said, speak in a language that can be heard. Mm. You know, so if I said, and actually my dad, he's a good sport. He's read some books on Buddhism and, you know, he's pretty open-minded, but, you know, uh, you know, somebody who may hate Buddhism, you know, but you can talk about all world religions talk about the process of slowing down and cultivating insight and compassion. I mean, take the Bible, the new Testament, Jesus told his disciples, he pointed up in the sky and he said, look at the birds in the air that, you know, and he got sort of Buddhist, you know, he basically was like, they're not concerned about the past. They're not concerned about the future. They're in the present moment. Every world system uh, talks about slowing down, cultivating insight, cultivating equanimity. They may not use the word equanimity, but cultivating equanimity, cultivating compassion. These are universal things. Yeah. So it's a lot of it is just how do you translate it? Yeah. Okay. So uh, before we kind of wrap up the your, the topic here, I wanted to ask, and I think there is, like I said earlier, so much to say about this topic, but is there anything we haven't asked that feels especially important for you to say uh, about, about um, spiritually integrative counseling? You know, is there, there's something overall that, that you feel is just really important to, to leave that, that on? Yeah. You know, I, I appreciate that, Noah. Actually, I, I guess I, I would, first off, I love y'all's questions and I hope this has been helpful for you know, your audience, but uh, thank you for having me. Um, so we were talking about cultural diversity earlier, and I did make the statement about um, atheists or agnostics uh, being spiritual too. And I'll start with that. And what I mean is 
Um, you know, whoever we are, we're conservative, we're progressive, we're atheist, we're Christian, we're Buddhist, you know, uh, Hindu, Taoist, whoever we are. The first thing is we have difficulty in our lives. You're a Republican or you're a Democrat. We're living in hard times, you know, whoever you are. You may see the world differently, but we're all having difficulty together. You know, um, a friend was telling me, I guess uh, not too, I think before he ran for president, Joe Biden wrote a book. I didn't read it, but I guess Joe Biden wrote maybe an autobiography. And I'm citing my friend. So this is third hand. But apparently Joe Biden made the point that, you know, 40% of all Americans, well, 40% of men, 33% of all women um, will develop cancer at some point in their life. Cancer is actually very common. Um, trauma is actually way more common than people realize when you actually understand what trauma is. Um, these are uncertain financial times, like people are leaving their jobs. Um, many things are happening in our society. And Joe Biden kind of just, if you look at how common, Joe Biden makes the point, like if you look at how common drunk driving car accidents are, cancer, Alzheimer's, Lou Gehrig's disease, um, you know, Moat Parkinson's, um, most, many, many, many people have some form of profound suffering in their lives. So let's be kind, you know, let's be kind. And in spiritually integrative counseling, when I say anyone can be spiritual, we all have difficulty in our lives and, and we want some freedom from that difficulty. We all want to know what our, what our purpose is. We all want, maybe your purpose is to study science. I don't know but we all want a purpose in life. We all wonder why we're here. You know, we all want human connection. We all have stress and difficulty and we want to be free of that difficulty and we all want to be well. And those are some of the dimensions of what spirituality is about. So spiritually integrative counseling can actually be quite universal and it can bridge these seemingly big gaps that are in our society and maybe it's even one vehicle for healing our society right now. What experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? Ah, excellent question. Um, I have worked a lot with the LGBT community, and I also do that a lot just in my personal life, like just kind of social justice uh, work. I have worked in a therapeutic setting. I have worked with some transgender clients. I've worked more with uh, lesbian, gay, and bisexual clients, especially couples counseling, uh, but definitely have experience in that. And um, in terms of people of color, indigenous color, absolutely a ton of experience, partially because I work a lot in end-of-life care and trauma. And the reality is that we're all mortal beings and trauma is very common. So when you, one, one of the many reasons I like end-of-life work is because you get to work with everybody. It automatically exposes you to the rich tapestry of cultural diversity. Uh, I have worked less uh, with, uh, with undocumented um, Americans, and, uh, but when I worked in healthcare, I worked with them a lot um, because uh, Texas is close to the border. Um, and I, I worked, I tried to work at nonprofit healthcare institutions that were committed to treating people regardless of their funding status. So when I worked in healthcare settings, I, I worked with um, undocumented citizens quite a bit. Uh, still do some of that in my volunteer work. But now I would say um, 
a lot of my volunteer work uh, and clinical work, I, I work a lot. I, I do value working with LGBTQ folks, but uh, more admittedly, more kind of couples counseling type work. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, I, I've worked less with transgender clients, uh, but value that work as well. Yeah. Okay. How do you determine your client's treatment plan goals and how will I know I'm done with therapy apart from the afterlife care where, you know, the, the end is fairly obvious. <laughs> right. Right. Um, you know, it's all about the client. What do they say they want to work on? Um, sometimes a client may not want to work on something that I feel important and that's okay. I usually will check it out with the client, but, uh, you are paying for my time and will work on what you want to work on. So I try to buy treatment centered and focus on what the client works on, what wants to work with. Uh, in terms of determining the treatment plan, it totally depends on what the client's coming in for. Yeah, it just depends on what the client's coming in for. But I tend to be either kind of acceptance and commitment therapy or mindful or sorry, uh, humanistic existential, just depending on what the client is, is coming in for. Okay. Okay. How would you say your clients would describe or experience you? What's feedback you've received? What, what are, what is your aim in those situations? Uh, I hope uh, my clients experience me as knowledgeable, non-judgmental, and kind. Those are the most important things. Okay. Now, are you a therapist who will laugh or cry with your clients? And when yes. I say cry, I don't mean like bawling, you know, just even, just even a simple tear. Sure. Uh, yes, I will. And I mean, I'm, I've, worked with, I, I've worked a lot with sexual assault clients. Um, and, and in particular, in trauma, my trauma practice has evolved. I used to do um, PTSD assessments for the VA, so I was kind of more military-based, but that was more of an assessment thing. Um, I have worked a lot with women who've been sexually assaulted and, you know, just the other day, well, I, I work a lot with clients who are terminally ill and I'll have experiences in my clinical work where say a client will just burst out crying and say, I don't want to die. You know? Um, I mean, I definitely see suffering in the raw and I, I, one of the gifts of psychology is you're there for your clients, you know, and to step out, this is kind of a Zen thing that infuses my psychology work to be able to step outside of your stuff and your own conditional thought patterns, emotional reactions, and to be present to the sacred tabernacle that is another person's consciousness is the ultimate gift in my opinion. Um, but I, um, <laughs> Forgive me, Noah. I think I was feeling so much emotions. Uh, so yeah, like right there in the moment, Noah, your good question made me feel a lot of emotions. Will I cry with a client? Yeah. I'm not going to sit there and openly weep and make it about sure, me, yeah. but we're all human beings. And I think sometimes, quite frankly, if you don't acknowledge the reality of your own humanness, you're being disingenuous, quite frankly. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. I think that's a good way of putting that. Um, another question I want to be sure to ask since we're sure. running a bit low on time here is how do you define holding space for someone? Oh, such a good question. Uh, and again, this is honestly where my Zen training for me at least has been an asset. Um, I do have a strong meditation practice. And so, and I also do a lot of work with professional therapists, you know, who might themselves be, um, you know, thanatologists do end of life work like I do. And so, being able to meditate, in some ways, meditation, ther providing therapy is a form of meditation, 
you know, like right now in the moment with you two, you know, I'm trying to be focused on Amanda and I'm trying to be focused on Noah, you know, um, and that's what therapy is too. So what, one, what is one thing mindfulness meditation does? It gives us practice bringing ourselves back to the present moment of reality and gives us practice watching our thoughts, watching our emotions. So when I'm holding space for a client, you know, hey, uh, my mom has Alzheimer's. That's a reality. Uh, my mother-in-law is in hospice right now. Um, one of my children, this is public information. One of my children is at a school in AISD where a student committed suicide. I'm a human being too, just like all of us, you know? And so, uh, well, I just thought of one of my daughters and, and some of the sad things happening and uh, it made me sad. And then I brought myself back to Amanda and Noah, you know? And so meditation, meditation and providing therapy are exercises in being present, bringing yourself back to the client again and again and again. They may talk about being assaulted or the assault of chemotherapy or surgery, and you may feel your own overwhelming emotions. And you might think, man, Someday I'm going to die too. And you could be overwhelmed or you could think about your mom with Alzheimer's that's incurable. And then you bring yourself back. You care for yourself so you can care for your clients. And, and, and you know, be providing therapy, Irv Yalom wrote a book called The Gift of Therapy and he's 100% right. The chance to step outside of yourself and be present to another human being, it's maybe the greatest gift you can have. And that's what providing therapy is like. And that's why I love it. One of the reasons I love it. <laughs> An answer. Next question, which I feel like you, for some reason, you may have a lot to say about this. <laughs> <laughs> How would you define happiness? Ah, such a good question. I saw you wrote that. I would, and this is a rich question, but I'll answer it briefly to say, I actually don't use the term happiness. Um, Martin Seligman um, wrote a great book a while back that he, that's called What You Can Change and What You Can't. I don't agree with everything in there, by the way, but um, uh, you know, it, it, one of the things he talks about is happiness. And he's a positive psychologist, which in a way, who doesn't love positive psychology? But there's a rich, this is more technical talk, there's a rich kind of debate between existential psychology versus positive psychology. And it's not that positive psychology is bad, but it's also true that uh, we live in a world where a pandemic can arise, where there can be social arrest, uh, unrest. We live in a world where hard things happen to good people. You may do nothing wrong, and sometimes bad things happen to good people. Um, and so, you know, when we think of happiness, happiness tends to be more, and even in Martin Seligman, Martin Seligman, by the way, is the uh, former president of the American Psychological Association. So he's definitely a big mover and shaker in the field. Martin Seligman has written a lot on the term happiness. And if you read Seligman, he tends, and this is a simplification, but I could elaborate and back this up more, but Seligman talks about happiness like a lot of people. Happiness tends to be fleeting pleasures, you know, like I could have a delicious mint or, you know, I love ice cold ice water. It's like my thing. I like really cold water. You know, you can have fleeting sensory pleasures, uh, ice cream, um, you know, a nice nap on a Sunday or something like that. That's great. Um, I'm more interested in purpose and meaning. You know, if you look at the seminal figures in psychology or social justice, uh, you know, Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Mother Teresa, you know, you look at the Dalai Lama, you look at people, Maya Angelou, artists, social justice activists, 
mental health researchers, spiritual teachers, people who change the world. Uh, they sometimes have profound struggles. They sometimes make profound mistakes precisely because they're in the world working for change, doing the hard and necessary work. They're exposed to temptation. They're exposed to difficulty. And just like us, they're going to make mistakes. They're not always happy, by the way, you know, but they are living purposeful, value-based, meaningful lives. So while happiness is great and I enjoy ice cream and chilling on the couch too, you know, I tend to focus on what is purposeful. Like, for example, being a psychologist doing end-of-life work during a pandemic is not always fun, but it is meaningful, and I do believe it matters. So I tend to focus also as a clinician, I tend to focus more on purpose than happiness. But I love your question. Okay. Uh, just a, a couple more questions for you. Yeah. What is the most embarrassing moment you have had as a clinician to date? <laughs> uh, hard to say. Um, <laughs> one was on, uh, well, I, I want to keep things de-identified. Uh, I, I will say during the pandemic, uh, doing, I, I do believe in telehealth for all kinds of reasons. Um, but, uh, sometimes at telehealth, when my wife is a school teacher, my kids are in school, uh, you're at home doing telehealth, uh, with, you know, pets and the kids and, uh, your wife is a teacher and, you know, uh, it does involve, it does present itself with uh, delightful background noises that you wouldn't traditionally have in a therapeutic setting, <laughs> just to de-identify it. <laughs> so. Fair enough, fair enough. Okay. One more question and then we'll just kind of sum everything up. Um, are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Um, Yes, I've been in therapy and it was some of the best times of my life. Uh, and I'm grateful for it. I was at, so I was running a palliative care program, um, for a couple of years as a chaplain and I loved it. Um, but one of the things I would do is kind of deliver bad news for the physicians or with the physicians and, uh, and then I'll also provide tons and tons of resources, but yeah, having to look another sentient being in the eyes and tell them that they're terminally ill or their child is terminally ill and do that 40 to 60 hours a week, day after day, year after year, even when you do a lot of meditation can take its toll. So uh, for several years I did therapy and it was one of the best things in my life. And it's what influenced me to become a psychologist myself. When I completed my own therapy, I went and joined a PhD program because I thought I want to do that for other people. And that's why, cool. yeah, so good I, I, yeah, I, do I do therapy now? Not at the moment, but it's a good idea. And uh, I do very close to therapy in that um, I am in several professional consultation groups, which is kind of peer support, which is a very close ally of therapy. Uh, sure. and, yeah. And that keeps me going. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, is there anything else that you think would be good for a potential client or other therapists to know about you? Yeah, yeah. Well, and in this interview, and I hope this is helpful, y'all, I've, I've also kind of geared it for fellow clinicians, you know, because we all need support. And uh, I, I would say for patients, clinicians, anyone living in the world right now, um, the, the only other thing I would say is be playful, you know, be playful, have fun, you know, as adults we're kind of playful and culturally conditioned ways where it's okay to be playful. Like we'll drink beer and watch football or, you know, this is fine. It's fine. Watch, drink your beer and watch football. That's cool. Be who you are. But 
you know, just ask yourself as an adult, you're listening to this interview, when was the last time you were playful? When was the last time you had fun? Like you just threw your head back and laughed out loud or you danced as if no one was watching. When was the last time you actually were in the world the way you want to be in the world and you had play and fun in your life? Maybe you should be doing some of that. And that's even relevant to spiritually integrative counseling because my hypothesis, if you look at the best spiritual teachers, they also have a good sense of humor. You know, like they're wise, they've been through difficult things, they have insight, but they're also playful. It's good to be playful. Humor is healing. You know, humor is healing. So yeah, be kind to yourself. Good, good words to leave this interview on. And uh, thanks so much for being on the show and answering all our questions. Yeah. Hey, this is fun. And uh, yeah, anytime I can be of service to y'all and yeah, man, just uh, be well, my friends. It's good to, good to meet y'all. Thank you. you thanks again, well. David. Thanks friends. Be well. Thank you for listening to Next Quest Podcast. We learned something new today and hope you did too. Stay tuned for our episode next week featuring Ariel Sokol Ward, licensed clinical social worker who will be speaking about her practice in an area of interest, grief, loss, and trauma. Next Quest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources. Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Podcast, or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.